Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is going to come from a difficult passage in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus will be giving his disciples a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like on the earth. And his description produces a very sharp warning for his hearers that our right standing before God is determined by our relationship with Jesus as the King. Thanks for joining us today as we hear how to love the least of these within our communities. One of the first places that Emily and I really got to know each other was uh, serving in the food service industry at our university. Um, You can see how uh, good those two kids looked back then in the day. Uh, I worked in the cafeteria kitchen slinging hash. That was my job. But Emily, she got the upgrade. She, in fact, worked in a unique, very coveted place in the university called the President's Dining Hall. And so it was this this, uh, special area that had fancy tables and all the nice flatware and all those who served would dress up. And so Emily's always wearing like a a tie. And I mean, she just, she looks the whole part and everybody there who does it. They they know all the right procedures and they all know all the right things to do. Well, there just so happened this one time they needed some extra help. (laughs) So guess who got to serve in the president's dining hall? So the occasion why they needed help is there was some dignitary, I can't remember if it was a senator or a congressman or somebody who was just like really important was coming. And so I got recruited and I put on whatever the nicest shirt that I had and they briefed the few of us who were helping out that this is a a really important meal. And I'll tell you what, folks, I mean, I did good. I did. I mean, at my table, the, the, the group that I was serving, I was certain that was the president of the university or the or the of the world right i i had all this panache right i had all all this great uh, kind of military-esque yes sir how can I? and I, I would give a little flair to everything i did come to find out the table i had was the driver of the <laughs> person so didn't matter didn't matter at all isn't it funny how sometimes we act a little different dependent upon who we think we're serving? Isn't that strange? Like, if you knew who it really was that you were serving, um, maybe your attitude would be different. Or because you think you're serving someone you think you know, uh, you're either a little bit more decorated, you're, you have a little bit more dignity, or maybe you could not really care less because I know this, whoever this person is, right? Isn't that a funny little human characteristic? And I, I'm willing to bet that as much as you might think that you're immune to that behavior, uh, trust me, the Bible says it's, it is human nature. In fact, we are told by command that we're not to show favoritism. There was a show that exploited this human flaw, and it's on cable TV. Maybe you remember this a few years back. I'm not sure if it's still on. It was called Undercover Boss. Remember that show? That was awesome, wasn't it? Watching... Those poor workers act like buffoons in front of the boss. And I mean, yeah, that's probably why it got a lot of eyeballs on it. And then that moment of the reveal when it was like, wait, you were, you were the boss the whole time? We're going to be in a passage of scripture this morning that ought to humble us. Because what you're going to find is that God in the orchestration of his rule and reign on the earth desires to see a characteristic of his kingdom 
demonstrated by you and I, not when we serve kings and princes, not when we serve senators and dignitaries, but most evident when we are serving those who are the least of these in our communities. This morning, we're going to be really doing kind of a part two of last Sunday's message, but we're going to be in Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, We're going to deal with um, what is the the last of uh, three or four different parables uh, that our Lord gives, speaking of the time of his return, a time of judgment. Um, as, you're, as you're turning there, uh, I, I want to lay out just a little bit of a structure here. No doubt, this is a passage you have heard before, but I want to make sure that you're catching that there really are two stories going on. Two stories that run parallel to one another, and in our study of that parallel relationship, we will uncover certain key conclusions that come from this text that will influence how you live with Jesus. Specifically, how you live with Jesus among those who sometimes are the least likely for you to serve. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. We're going to start with Jesus' words in verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another. Just as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Well, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and imprisoned, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, 
you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All right. Even in the reading of God's word, I hope you, by the indwelling of the Spirit, sense the conviction, sense the humility needed to say, wow, what, what what an immense truth that is so often missed and overlooked by that human flaw of favoritism. Uh, Before we dive into a few conclusions, I I just want to highlight a a few unique uh, curiosities in this text. Uh, The first, almost foremost, that you cannot get beyond is that we are speaking here about the judgment of God. This is the day of judgment. All nations are gathered. There's no future judgment to happen after this. There's no prior judgment to this, this is the judgment in which Jesus will come and judge the world. If you needed help just seeing that, let me just remind you of verse 31. He will sit on his throne and he will judge in a way that shows an observable separation of all humanity. And then we're given a metaphor for what that's like. It's like sheep and goats. So this isn't just a parable about a shepherd. This is a foretelling of what Jesus will do with with all of us. Another thing that's interesting that I I notice here is the word uh, prepared. You'll see in verse 34, uh, there's a kingdom that has been prepared. Uh, Down in verse 41, there is eternal fire that has been prepared. Isn't that interesting? That, That there is a preparation with this judgment always in the mind of God to happen. Two unique curiosities on that. The first, um, hell was never made for humans. Did you notice that? Look again with me in verse 41. The eternal fire prepared for who? Not humans. This was intended to be a punishment evoked upon the disobedience and the fall of Satan and his demons, of which those who yield to Satan as their leader, to the demons as those they follow, will find they will be ushered as well after that punishment. One other unique curiosity is that the the preparation for the righteous was beginning when? Do you notice that? Since the creation of the world. So this, this needs to be for us as those who fear and follow God, not as some afterthought in the mind of God. This is, this is what the whole thing's about. This preparation has been going on from before time, from the moment of creation. One last thing to just highlight before we look at some conclusions. Uh, verse 46, in whatever aspect we're going to recognize the punishment unto the wicked, we must see the parallel for the reward of the righteous. Notice in verse 46, they are both labeled with the adjective modifier eternal. This is eternal. Do you ever take those Scantron tests in school? Remember those standardized tests, right? Come on, you guys remember those? Some of you are like, that was before my time, Pastor. You didn't. Here's the situation with those. Whatever you put down and hand in, that's it. That's what you get graded on. You don't get to go back and change your answers after the fact. You don't, you don't get to go back and try again. Whatever you put down is locked in. 
you know you're taking one of those right now? All of us right now are in the process of a type of evaluation exam that God is giving you? I wonder wonder how they're going to handle this. Let's give them this situation. Ooh, I wonder how they're going to respond to this person as a neighbor. Ooh, let's let's toss this little uh, frustrating element at them. Let's see how they respond to this. Do Do they look more like Jesus? Or do they look like themselves in their flesh? And whatever you do, whatever your response is, that that was the response that is now locked into your account. Now I've got good news for those who have placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus. The Lamb who, what, takes away the wrong answers on the test. Wherever your behavior and your thoughts and your words and your deeds have amounted to the red marker of God's grade book, that we have been told is sin of good news. Jesus has covered those. He has paid for those. And so hopefully you find yourself in that position today. But at least before we dive into some conclusions, let us recognize that eternal punishment and eternal reward are offered here by Jesus as parallel consequences for the, the test that you're in right now. So what are, what are some main ones that we can learn to live by in regards to following Jesus in our community. I, I phrase these with the, with the title must. And they're going to take just a minute to unpack. So here's the first one. Christian love for the community must be transformationally instinctual. Oh, you guys all got, everybody's good on that. Next one, number two. Yeah. All right. I, I chose these words carefully. And I chose them based upon observing what's going on in this text. So the first has to do with this term transformationally. Recognize that there are two different classes of animals. There are what? Sheep and goats. Is a sheep a goat? Yes or no? Is a goat a sheep? Yes or no? No. There has been a change that has occurred such that one is not a goat and the other... Not a sheep. Well, the reason why this is critical for us is because if we don't understand that the love of Jesus displayed by you for the community doesn't flow from transformation, you perhaps will be confused in thinking that you have to love your community in order to be transformed. And I want to warn you, that is backwards. That is not how it works. You don't go to a car dealership and take care and wash the cars so they give it to you. Right? If, if, the, if the owner of the dealership saw this Yahoo out there washing cars every day, they'd probably call the cops on them. Why are you doing this? Well, because this, this is going to be mine. You don't, you don't take care of it. You don't evidence ownership of it so that you get it. Why do you take care of the cars that you have? Why do you take care of them? Because they're yours. This is the exact same understanding when it comes to salvation. You and I need to be stewards of our salvation. The book of Philippians tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not so that you get saved, but because it is yours. And so there must be a transformation that starts off the work of love for our community. All right, I hope I'm making sense on this. If, if you need a little help, here's a couple of scriptures. Ephesians 2.10. 
for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to then do what? Then do good works. You don't do good works so that you're created in Christ Jesus. You are transformed and that's why you do good. That's why you show love. This from 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is, ought to be in your top 10 best Bible verses in the New Testament. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? Oh, I got two of you saying it. Try it out. He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You, you don't do good things so that you're saved. That's not transformation. You do good things because you have been transformed. Uh, Look how Paul relates it to Timothy in his last letter. He says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Why? Why do he save you? Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Did you catch the time marker here too? Don't know if you caught that. Isn't that interesting? The same kingdom that's been prepared since the creation of the world, that same grace that transforms us is offered to us in Christ when? Before the beginning of time. And so make sure we don't get this wrong. He doesn't doesn't save you because you do good things. Because you don't do good things. He saves you because of his grace. And because he has saved you, now we show love to our community. That's what transformationalism, that's what transformationally means. I've got a bunch more in my notes here to talk about Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus. Y'all got the point? Give me an amen and we'll just skip it. Okay, all right, here we go. What's the the second term? Transformationally instinctual. So yeah, sheep and goats, I get it. There's one and there's the other. They're not not the same. One is transformed. I want to point out another key aspect within this parable. Did you notice that when the Lord is giving this understanding... He relates himself with the first person pronoun. You did this for, for me. You, you did this for me. And do you remember the, the righteous people's response? Well, when did we do that for you? When did we do that for you? If the queen of, oh, queen's dead. If the king of England, long live the queen. Sorry. Yeah. If someone really important came to your house, would you serve them? Is this, you guys wait. Is this on? Yeah, you guys, right? If someone really important came to your house, you, you would serve them, right? Because because look, they're so important. These people in our story, they didn't even know that. They, they didn't even know that this was someone important. All they knew is it was somebody who was what? Hungry. All they knew is it was somebody who was what? Thirsty, sick, needing clothes. That's all they knew. That's all they knew. And here's the beautiful thing about being a Christian. Is that God gives you a transformed life that flows from the work and teaching of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, the Holy Spirit's work is to begin to change how you think. To change how you see the world. Has this, has this ever happened to you? Have you ever uh, driven by somebody just on the road. Maybe you were busy and, and they were in need for whatever reason. The, the, uh, the hood of the car was up. Smoke was coming out. This happened to me about a year ago. I was driving home. I was needing to get somewhere. And I saw this crummy car with its hood up and just smoke coming out. And I, I went by going, you know, faster than I should. And it was like, well, too bad for them. 
and then I thought, oh, geez, what if that was me? I mean, wouldn't you want someone to, there's no one stopped. And so now, now I'm hitting the brakes from 60 miles an hour and looking for a place to turn and I'm going back. What? Why? Why would I do that? And, and the reason is because I, I may be able to, without the Spirit of God, be able to look at somebody who's in worse off situation from me and be like, well, tough for them, but they made some bad choices in life, right? But once I have the Spirit of God, I am not forever able to ignore that. I now have a new instinct. Do you, do you get it? I, I, I can't write them off. If, if I see somebody who is in need, it's not me that wants to help them. I want to get to where I need to go. It's the Spirit of God that has transformed me that keeps going like, Hey, Ryan. Ryan. And now I have a new instinct that's bubbling up from within. And so there may be another way to characterize this. We could call it supernaturalism that characterizes the love of God. I, I, I want to label it instinct, um, transformational instinct. You, you now have, and by the way, this is a characteristic of Christian love. Um, so cr- Christian love for the community must be transformationally instinctual. Just one last note on this before we move on. I don't want to be oversimplistic because for you, you might be thinking, well, yeah, Ryan, I'm a Christian, but I still have to give thought to helping people. It's not like I do it naturally. Yes, that is correct. My point is you are not able to just overlook it any longer. It's now something that bubbles up from within you. And if it's not, if your acts of good for the community are not flowing from the Spirit's work within you, then it's not Christian love. It could be American love. It could be family love. It could be uh, youper love, right? Do, do people do good things for others? Absolutely, all the time, right? Look, it, it, you, don't, you don't need to come to church to know how to help somebody. God's given this understanding to everybody, and so you'll see glimpses of it everywhere. But there is a unique characteristic that makes it Christian. And Christian love comes from those who have been transformed and who now by the Spirit's indwelling have a new instinct. They just, they just can't overlook it. They cannot but help to want to help. Does that make sense? Secondly, Christian love for the community must be rooted in a relationship with Jesus. This is a big one. Every one of these is important, but... Now, again, we're not talking about love in general. We're talking about Christian love. So where does Jesus show up here? Well, the best verse is verse 40. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So what's this issue of relationship have to do with anything? I want to highlight something that is easy to overlook in this passage. Go back up to the parallel of preparation. Do you remember that? Two preparations. A preparation for the kingdom, right? You're welcome. Come on, come on into it to the righteous. Depart from me to eternal fire, right? Those are the two preparations. But look very closely back in verse 34 because there's a little nuance given to the preparation. Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your what? Isn't that a funny word? Take your inheritance, you know, an inheritance is not something that you just share with strangers. Did you know that, right? Inheritance is something family gets, right? 
When my parents kick the bucket, I tell you what, I'm gonna. Sorry, I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> not not sharing with anybody else. Why? Because it's only within the family that you receive an inheritance. We can't miss that because that's the exact wording of the invitation, which proves that you must have some sort of a relational connection with Jesus if you're going to have access to Christian love for the community. Otherwise, you don't get access to the what? To the inheritance. That's right. In fact, if we go a little bit further, two chapters further in Matthew, Matthew 28, watch what Jesus now calls his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. This is after the resurrection. Go tell my what? Look at that. He calls them brothers. Go tell my brothers. You're, you're in the family of God by virtue of your regeneration through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. You belong to a new family, which means you have access to an inheritance. Now, we're also given some warning passages. And so I want to make sure that you see how they line up in correspondence with this. Matthew chapter 7. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a relational connection again with the Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? Good or bad? Are they doing good things or bad things? Obviously, they're doing good things here. Watch what Jesus says. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What was the problem here? It wasn't doing good in the community. What was the key aspect that determined whether they were invited in or not? Did you catch it? I never knew you. There was no relationship there. Again, another passage, this out of Luke. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. But then you'll say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me. Here, it's the exact same phrase. Away from me, evildoers. Another example of judgment that's given here. What, what if uh, <clears throat> it's really cold out? It snowed again in April. And I show up because my car breaks down, middle of the night, knocking on your door, right? So I'll pick on Dave and Patty for a minute, right? For whatever reason, I'm lost over at Sawyer Lake, right? Car broke down. I'm knocking on the door. Hey, I need help. Let me in. It's cold, so I'm wearing a mask. What? what, Yeah, you got it. Yeah, what what, what are they going to do? Are they just going to let me in? No, but, but maybe, maybe they recognize my voice. Right? Because we're friends. We've known each other a long time. Maybe I say, this is Pastor Ryan. What are they going to do when they hear that? Lock all the locks. <laughs> no, they're going to say, we know you. We know you. I, I cannot understress the importance of this point. The reason why you are let into an inheritance is because you have a relationship with Jesus. He's not just the son of God. He's the son of God for you. He's not just someone's Lord. He's your Lord. He's not just the master of the universe. He's 
your master. Does this make sense? All right, number three. Christian love for the community must begin with the least of these. There's no way around this, folks. There's nothing in this text that indicates if you got the correct theology, you get to go to heaven. That's not in here anywhere. Now, I'm all about correct theology. Here's the beautiful thing about the spirit. When you have the spirit of God, by the way, all of us in the course of our lives are going to have certain things that need correction. That's what the spirit's job is, is to help you know where to make those corrections. Nevertheless, none of that is in this passage. The only thing in this passage is whether or not there is evidence of correct theology and the indwelling of the Spirit. Is it evident in your life anywhere? And the place where it's best seen more than anywhere else is with the least of these. We have six characteristics. Hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, imprisoned. Could we add to that list? What do you think? Yeah, there's a lot of other characteristics that could go along in the category of those who are the least of these. Which, by the way, that doesn't show up until verse 40. Jesus' characterization does not show the contrast until you get to the end of the story. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you invariably have also done for the, guess what? The king. There's two reasons why. Why, why is this true? Why do we have to begin with the least of these? And the first is because this is the character of God. This is who God is. If you are going to be in the family of God, you need to look like the characteristic of that family. And who is God? He is the father to the fatherless. He is the one who watches over the widow and the orphan as we studied last week. That's who he is. There's a second reason why, however, we have to begin with the least of these. You're not going to like it. It's because that's who you are. You are the least of these. What was it that you had to impress God with? Right? The, the flare of your pouring water. Big deal. Big deal. Money in the bank account? I graduated from, I am the vice president of blah, blah. What? Doesn't matter at all. Do you know what you and I are? We are bankrupt. Spiritually, we are lost. We are blind. We are dead. If you wanted a word for it, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're sick, you are naked. You are imprisoned in sin. And what did God do for the least of these? He showed grace. He showed mercy. That is why we as well have to begin with the least of these. We, we read a passage already. Uh, Sandy read it for us. Um, here, here's just a parallel to that from Matthew 5. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. And so because of the nature of our father, of which we belong to his family, and because that's what was done for us, what does Christian love for the community look like? Well, it looks like beginning with the least of these. All right, one final uh, conclusion and then just some simple applications. Christian love for the community is actually evidence of the kingdom of God. 
I mean, we, we've been taught to pray it. We pray it every week. Thy kingdom, what? How? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, we, this, this is the whole scope of why God left you here. That we want to see evidence of the kingdom. And in fact, that's what this whole parable is showing us. The reason why you have the, you did this for me, you did this for me, you did this for me. When did we do this for you? When did we do this for you? The reason why that whole contrast exists is because what God's trying to show you is that it was his all along. When you serve the least of these, you are actually serving in the characteristic of the kingdom of God. It's there. It's, it's already being displayed. It's as if you were doing it to the boss himself. Christian love is evidencing the kingdom of God. There's no version of our lives together with one another that is intended to look characteristically different in heaven than it does now. Apart from sin, which is a pretty big one. But God gives us that access now to practice this now so that we evidence what it looks like to see his rule, the rule of King Jesus on the earth. Another interesting note on this is that the value of a service, according to this, seems predicated by determining who it is you're serving. Did you catch me on that? The value of your service depends on who you're serving. That, that's why this is such a like, What? We were serving you the whole time? You and I have opportunity to evidence the kingdom of God. And what I want to share with you today is to the least of these in your world, you may be the only Jesus they ever see. You may be the only Jesus that they ever get to encounter. And when you love them, not in a form of favoritism that you get anything out of, but serve them as if the boss was there you will be demonstrating what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, for him to be the ruler, the ruler of your life, of your words and deeds and actions. So how do we do this? How do we do life with Jesus in our community? We need to begin, before we even talk about what you do, with this question. We have to start right here. Do you know Jesus? Because if you don't know Jesus... Well, you can perform a miracle and you can cast out demons in his name. You can do all those things and, and you'll just be a goat. That's it. At the end of the day, you'll be on the left and you will actually have been following a false Messiah, probably yourself, maybe someone who's deceived you. So we have to begin right here. Make, don't miss this, guys. I, I, I sometimes don't even know who, who we have in church for making certain that you are confident that you know Jesus. And if if that's not you this morning, remember, we're not talking about a trivial parable. We're talking about the judgment of the nations. If you want to pass this test, you need to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. If you give me just 60 more seconds on that, what what does it mean to know Jesus? It starts with humility. It starts by asking God for help. You would say in your heart, Lord, I recognize that my sins will condemn me and that I am a sinner. We call that confession. 
Confession is simply saying about your sin what God says about your sin, not redefining it, not blinding yourself to it, not characterizing it as normal because everybody's doing it. No, you confess for what it is. And then you repent. Repent means I'm going to follow I'm going to follow someone else. I'm going to change my thought, action, and behavior so that it's characterized no longer after what my culture thinks or what I want, but after what he wants. And you can do that through a prayer. You can do that publicly. You can do that in the quietness of your hearts. But we cannot move any further until this question has been answered. Because true Christian love for the community must include a relationship with Jesus. So let's, let's presume we're there then. All right? If, if you are there... Now, what do we do? And here's where I want to challenge you this morning. Ask yourself this question. Who are the least of these in your community? Who are they? If you're in your sermon notes, I put three blanks. And this is a pretty, this is a pretty heavy challenge for you because I wonder if you're brave enough today to just write down who that is at work for you. Who, who is the person when you think of your job, and even if you're retired, you still work. There's stuff you do, right? I mean, it may be somebody that you come across. My question for you is this. Who is the spirit laying on your heart? For somebody that would be characterized as the least of these. Well, what about your family? That one's even harder sometimes. Right? That family member that, you know, you're avoiding at Thanksgiving. Or maybe a distant relative, right? Who is that? Who is just, and every time they just want to talk about Biden or Trump or whatever. Every time I just want to avoid whatever it is. They might for you be the least of these. Characterized differently than um, maybe physical hungry. We live, we live in America, after all. Pretty much everybody's not, everybody's full here. But maybe there's a spiritual hunger there's, that's there. Maybe there's a spiritual thirst. Maybe there's a spiritual sickness that they have. And so they need the love of Jesus to them as the least of these. The last one I put down is just in your own neighborhood. Uh, if, you're, if you and I aren't going to obey God's word, we're kind of wasting our time here. So that's just a little challenge asking you, let, let the spirit move in your heart and define who are these individuals so that we can be those characterized as living our life with Jesus in our community. Amen. You pray with me today, Father, we want to humble ourselves. Um, this is, a, this is a, a terribly awesome parable today that shows us um, uh, our own human brokenness to show favoritism. Um, it leads us astray. We need spiritual eyes to see those who you see. And so for, for wherever, they, wherever they are and wherever we find ourselves, I pray you open our eyes today and help us to live and act and speak and serve like Jesus shows us, knowing that we're actually serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Angela Applecamp if she will come and make her way up here. Um, Angela has worked for years um, at the health department in town. Uh, Many times she has opportunity to serve on her own. Folks who are there, I've asked her to come and share some of those stories with us. Will you welcome her as she comes today? Okay. So I have to start with saying my daughter's had prom last night, so it was a very late night, early, early morning. So I'm already shaking before I even talk. So, because I'm tired. All right, so like he said, I work at the health department and I have the opportunity to work with a lot of amazing, wonderful families. But the people that I'm gonna focus on right now are my harder cases. They're the ones that have extreme poverty, mental health concerns, they have history of abuse, violence, and neglect, and or substance misuse and addiction. 
They have been in and out of jail, in and out of the psychiatric units, and they've been through a lot in their life. So I know I've shared with you in the past that I grew up wanting to be a missionary. <clears throat> well, God put me in a position that lets me talk about my faith freely whenever I feel like it in a home. There's no rules to it. Um, and I am in a pop- I'm serving a population that's often looked down on. These people are labeled as lazy or addicts or, well, they did this to themselves. But the truth is, they're not lazy. They really aren't. So some of these people have extreme depression or they're hopeless or they just really have a hard life. So if you're laying in bed and you have no hope, then you're not really going to be anxious to get up and try anything harder. And it's not, you don't care about what you're putting in your body, substance misuse wise. If you don't have a hope for a future, you don't really care. Anything to numb that pain. So before I tell you what I learned missioning to them, I have to give you a short, quick little neurological mental health lesson so that you can see them through my eyes. So if you live life outside of a community and outside of relationships, you're going to develop negative coping skills. So if you have, we, our relationships we have buffer our stress and they buffer our trauma so that we can go through it easier. The brain experiences things and develops synoptic connections that help you to be adaptive and promote safety. So many of us have the blessing of having friends and families with us that help those such stressful situations. So it's kind of hard sometimes for you to sit back and look at something that to you might seem small, but to somebody else is really big. One of the biggest predictors of how you can handle trauma in your life is if you have a trustworthy, protective relationship. Mental health and addiction are on the increase. Everybody knows it's on the rise. We are also losing our strong communities, and we don't have a lot of focus on people. The likelihood of someone getting out of poverty or ending a current substance misuse is directly related to their support system. So 20 years ago, statistics showed that 70% of people could stand up and say, I have somebody that could help me meet my needs. In 2022, that was 31%. So it's easy for you to say, well, I've been through something. I've been through stuff. I get it. And I figured it out just fine. And you may have too. Or, hey, they're just using it as an excuse. But the fact is, we have all been through a storm, but we are not on the same boat. Some of us are in yachts or speedboats. Some of us are in rowboats. And some of us are in broken down rafts. It depends on your job. Do you have flexibility? Do you have sick leave? What is your socioeconomic status? What is your health or the health of your family? And more importantly, do you have a relationship to help protect you and help you navigate that storm? We have two parts of our brain, two parts that do the thinking. The whole rest of our brain does actions. So if you are constantly in stress, you can't focus on making a good decision to better your future. You're just trying to protect yourself in the here and now. Some of the things that these people that I work with have to go through in one day would include, well, my car broke. I have no money to fix it. I can't get to work. I don't have money to pay for a cab. I can't leave my daughter with her dad because he might hurt her. Daycare's not open. I don't know if the electric's going to be on when I get home because I didn't have enough money to pay the bill. And now my other kid is sick at school and somehow I have to go get them. And I don't have vacation leave and my job is going to fire me. That doesn't leave a lot of room for spiritual growth or energy to be still and know I am God. So we have five stages of arousal. I'm almost done with this part. (laughs) We have five stages of arousal. I'm currently in a higher state than you because I'm hoping that I'm not boring you and I'm getting my points across. But the higher you go, the more likely you are to react without thinking. So some of them get blamed for their actions, right? But if you're operating here because you're already on a stressful level, it doesn't take a long time to get to here. And now you have people that have quit their job or told their boss off or decided, I'm not going to court, it's too hard. And now their life is a little harder. 
So what have I learned from trying to love the least of these? A lot. So you have to be patient and willing to take time. There is not a Bible verse that I can use or a set of Bible stories that I can use to open their eyes. I have to be patient, which is hard for me. These people have suffered a level of pain that I cannot begin to understand, which hardens their outlook on life. And it causes them to have these giant walls of distrust to protect themselves. And they use that distrust as an excuse to not go to church. I have to be able to read when they are ready to listen and actually hear what I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to share Jesus' love and acceptance. Because if you don't feel worthy of love and acceptance, you're not going to believe in a God that loves you, regardless of your coping skills and your worldly failure on a worldly scale. These people are aware of how you see them. They may act like they don't care, but they do. They are watching our actions long before they're willing to listen to our words. It takes a long time to gain their trust. They often will sit back and look at me and they'll share stories, trying to shock me, trying to prove to themselves that I am in fact judging. They watch for my reaction because it is hard for them to trust. And they have a hard time believing that they are included in the lost. In Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and serve the lost. They watch for me to argue with people I will go to their home and they'll show me screenshots of people ripping apart the health department or ripping apart a Christian-focused theme and wait for me to react or respond in anger. But even if I want to, I cannot. I have to constantly show love. They will know we are Christians by our love, as Olivia so beautifully sang in the DR. So John 13:35 says, By this all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. They will ask me, as I get in these conversations deeper and deeper, well, if there's a God, then why did I go through so much stuff alone? The answer, we live in a sinful world full of sinful people. But if Christians could just show love, they wouldn't be alone. They watch me show through my body language to see if I put them on the same level as I am for real. And when I'm willing to sit down in the middle of their messy life or their messy home, they're a lot more willing to drop their guard and listen to me. God commands us to love all people, and I get a lot of spiritual growth from this. He teaches me to be less egocentric and to live less for this world. Nor in the Bible does it say I have to have a perfect home or a perfect car or a perfect family or a beautiful house or anything to be worthy of God's love. Those are aspirations of this world, but this world is not my home. To the least of them, opens up my eyes to my blessings, especially the people in my life. It shows me my own faults and fears. I get to be aware of my greed sometimes and my jealousy. Uh, we started a diaper program at the health department, and we give a giant box of diapers to each family once a month. And I find myself once in a while thinking, well, I would like to have that. I would like to have free diapers. But then I'm reminded I have to think more Christ-like and instead focus on how blessed I am that I didn't need those diapers or that when I did, I had people in my life to buy them for me. James 2, 2 through 5 says, Suppose a man comes into you to your meeting wearing gold, rings, and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you sit there or sit by my, on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, have, has not God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? It is natural for us to be pulled towards safe, clean, healthy, shiny, put-together people and scenarios, but God calls us to love the least of them, and really, a lot of those are just outward illusions. To the least of them refers to those who are needy in many situations, hungry, thirsty, impoverished, sick, imprisoned, 
or just needing love. This population hungers for acceptance. They are, need more compassion, love, and understanding than most of us do. They are my people, and I'm very grateful God put me where he did, because I do truly love every one of them. They keep my faith in check, and they teach me about what really matters in life. Some of these people may seem like they're beyond hope, but when Christ seeks them and finds them, the gospel can change them.